I just also wanted to, um, Phil brought up the Kingdom of God series that we're going to have for Summers at Grace. I just want you to, to, to pray, pray. Um, I was telling Vey this morning that I'm, I'm in the midst of, I think, about four books I'm reading and uh, some, some lectures I'm listening to. I've got probably maybe 40 to 50 hours worth of reading and, and, um, and listening to lectures to do to get ready for that series. And then I've got to try to figure out how to uh, bring that, assimilate that information down to something that, that you guys are going to uh, enjoy and, and be drawn into as opposed to just being a pure lecture. So be praying for me in my preparation, praying for my brain as I try to bring all this information into my brain. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, I pray that your week has been blessed. I'm always encouraged by the saints. I'm always encouraged by you. Sunday mornings, uh, it has been more and more a buzz with the fellowship between the saints. And I'm very thankful for the depth of the relationships that are being built in, in this church. And I believe these connections have depth because they're dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. They're dependent upon God's work in our lives. And I pray that the relationships that are forged at this church last not just for a season here in Gainesville, but eternity. Gainesville is a bit of a transient community, as you know, with the university and with the medical community. And there are people who come and people who go. But at the same time, what we want to be is a church where when people are, when they come here and they enjoy being here, they build depth of relationships that can go with them uh, for the rest of their lives. As our family, as my family has traveled from place to place, we have made friendships that have lasted beyond the move. I'm confident that we will spend eternity with Christ enjoying some of those same relationships. That's the beauty of friendship in Christ. Our bond with one another cannot be broken. You may as well, let me, let me just put it this way, you may, just, may as well do your best to get along with one another in this life because we're all going to be worshiping together before the throne in the next. And if, you know, those times when you struggle with unity, think about that. But when we have to say goodbye to someone in this life, we know that it's really not goodbye, it's, it's what? See you later. We can be confident that we'll always see each other again, whether on earth, in the future or in the age to come. This afternoon, we're going to be sending off two dear couples who have joined GBC over the past couple of years, the Owls and the Tonkasalas. Both couples represent the relationships that I'm speaking about. I know that these dear saints have become, they've become dear to many of you. You've built relationships with, you and, with them, and so now they're leaving, and, and those relationships that you've built, it's hard to say goodbye. But as I said in Christ, it's not goodbye, right? It's see you later. The bonds of the Holy Spirit are not broken when they're stretched over many miles. They're not broken when they're stretched over time. You can be comforted to know that the relationships you have forged here in Christ will stand the test of time and eternity. As a church, I pray that we learn to say goodbye well. I pray that we learn to say goodbye well. For the Christian, goodbye takes on a different meaning, even if death is the occasion for the farewells. Did you know the bonds that we build in Christ are much greater than the bonds of even family? Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I'm sure some, I'm sure, struggle with this concept, but we need to understand that Jesus is speaking of discipleship here. In other words, your love for family can't get in the way of your love for Christ. Having said that, there's nothing sweeter, brethren, there's nothing sweeter than when one's earthly family is also in the heavenly family. Even more, there is no earthly relationship sweeter than the husband and wife who both love Christ and want to please Him. There's nothing more amazing when your children grow up to become brothers and sisters in Christ. It really should be our focus. It should be the aim of every interaction with our children. It should be to point them to the reality of a relationship in Christ. Said another way, everything you do should point your children to the greater reality of that relationship. It has been said that life is but one continual course of instruction. The hand of the parent writes on the heart of the child the first faint character which time deepens into strength so that nothing can efface them. Well, may those first faint characters be of Christ. May time deepen the strength of their love for Christ and His Word. Many of us watch the news and feel helpless in the face of all that we see, but the answer is found in how we rear our children. In the words of Ken Ham, imagine if we started raising generations of children who stood uncompromisingly on the Word of God, who knew how to defend the Christian faith, could answer the skeptical questions of this age, and had a fervor to share the gospel from the authority of God's Word with whomever they met. This could change the world, end quote. Well, again, we find ourselves this morning in Ephesians 6, 1-4. In these verses, Paul addresses the children and the parents. And in doing so, he recognizes that obedient children and loving parents are critical for gospel ministry. Said this way, a well-ordered family adorns the gospel. And, all, and well-ordered families are building blocks for the well-ordered church. Having said that, raising children, rearing children is next to marriage, maybe the most difficult task you will undertake. Not to scare those folks who are endeavoring on that route, but it's incredibly difficult to do it right, and yet it's even more difficult if you don't do it right. There is incredible blessing if you bring your children up to love the Lord which should be our goal. We should desire our children to become adult followers of Christ. The question is, how do we accomplish this? How do we make this happen? Obviously, it's the Lord who saves, but there's, there's definitely some tried and true methods, if you will, that come from Scripture in how we are to raise our children so that they will love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't escape my notice, I, I should say as well, it doesn't escape my notice that the raising of children is one of the more potentially divisive issues in the church. Case in point, the public school versus private school versus homeschool debate. I am actually, if you even, even if you listened to me last week, I'm actually neutral regarding school choice. I, it is your responsibility to educate your children. As such, you may choose any of those three options. But the, the problem is, for me, is that I'm concerned about the, the public schools and universities. And I think you should be aware of that problem. But I still think it's possible that you can send your kids to public school. That's your choice to make. Again, you see the divisive issue here. 
So the question is, how do we deal with potentially divisive issues? Well, we don't go beyond what Scripture says. We don't go beyond what Scripture says. We work hard not to judge people or judge others where Scripture does not clearly speak. We should take the time to study and understand the Scriptures, and when we disagree, we should make it our habit to pray deeply how we can help and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's that's how we handle it. That's how we handle division in the church. So with that, let's dive in. And as we do, we... As we do, uh, I want you to know that we're going to make it hopefully through point number two today. Let me pray for the sermon. Our gracious Lord, we thank you this morning again. Father, I pray for clarity of mind. Pray for strength, not my strength, but yours. I pray, Lord, specifically for the Holy Spirit to work through me. Lord, that I would decrease, that you would increase. That I would point to Christ, that I would not point to myself, that I would point to Christ. Thank you this morning for the sweet opportunity to bring your word to your people. In Christ's name, amen. Back when I was a younger man, I worked off and on in the construction field. You see, my father was a contractor. Now, I was never very good at it, which is why I became an engineer to sit behind a desk. But I was able to do a few things. I could, I could do some carpentry and some electrical. and I, I truly disliked plumbing, but I could, do it, I could do some of it in a pinch. I've also even roofed a few houses. I actually helped pour a few concrete slabs, though, again, I was never good at it. And you, if you're not good at pouring concrete, you probably shouldn't do it. Uh, there's a problem when you get the concrete out of, out of uh, kilter, if you will. But if you've ever done it, you know that pouring concrete is hard work. It it requires a a solid level base with strong form work, which must be prepared before anything else is done. If you don't get that right, you're not going to get the concrete slab right. When the concrete is poured, it has to be finished before it fully sets. And once, once the slab is set up, change is only possible with a jackhammer by removing what's been previously installed. And believe me, you don't want to be on a jackhammer trying to get, you know, to cut out a a concrete slab. Uh, Most of the time, Most of the time you must live with the result which sets the trajectory of even the future usefulness of the building. If done correctly, a well-poured concrete slab can be useful well beyond even our lifetimes. But if done incorrectly, the the evidence will appear soon enough as a crumbling surface, structural cracks, and even even walls and floors that are are out of level and out of square. Well, raising children is a lot like pouring concrete. Before the first baby arrives, a couple should prepare a solid base in their marriage and ready themselves for bringing this new life into the world and into their home. After the child arrives, the first few years can be likened to the time before the concrete sets. By our presence, through careful and thoughtful attention to thousands of details and to tens of thousands of of repetitions that are required by unfailing prayer and by careful instruction in the things of the Lord, we as parents attempt to set a mold that will last a lifetime and more into eternity. And once their lives are set in place, we hope that all those preparations result in men and women who live to please Christ, and men and women who themselves become parents and who themselves do the same thing. That should be the goal of Christian parenting. 
raise children who fear Christ. Just like pouring concrete, it's hot and it's sweaty and it's hard and it's subject to the whims of your environment. Think about it. Subject to the whims of your environment and the whims of their personality because you can raise four kids in the same home and they all four come out different. There are very few guarantees, actually, other than these. Your parenting flaws and shortcomings will become painfully evident as time marches on. Your child needs God's grace to reshape the concrete work which you will inevitably mess up. And we must trust Christ as we endeavor to parent our children, ultimately knowing that He is the one who saves. He's the one who is going to set your child on the correct trajectory. Now, as I said earlier, we're returning to our study in the book of Ephesians. Just by way of reminder, we're slowly working our way through this section, which started in Ephesians 5.15, where Paul writes, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Now, that is the fifth, the fifth of five walk statements in Ephesians 4-6. through These statements shape the text of, of the last three chapters. The first one in Ephesians 4.1, Paul calls the, the believers at Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which he described in the first three chapters. Now, as Christians, we have been called to a glorious salvation, and that's Paul's point in chapter 1. We've been called by the power of the Father who raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the heavenlies. That's chapter 1, verse 20. He has also raised us from the dead if we're truly in Christ and seated us in the heavenlies in Christ. That's chapter 2, verse 4. He did this through the saving work of the Son, chapter 1, verse 7. And it is through the blood of His sin atoning sacrifice that we have been redeemed and forgiven our transgressions. We've also been sealed and secured by the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It is truly the work of the Father, the the work of the Son, and the work of the the Spirit to bring us to full salvation and to to secure us unto eternity. Ultimately, each and every one of us who are in Christ have been saved by grace through faith. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which which God Himself has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's Ephesians 2.10. Therefore, it is on that basis that Paul calls for the Christian to walk worthy of those magnificent truths, the magnificent truth that God has accomplished salvation in your heart. And according to 2.15, walking in wisdom is a crucial part of the worthy walks. Again, as Christians, if we've been truly saved, if we've been truly saved with this glorious salvation, something ought to be different about our lives. Something ought to be different so that others see that this guy, this dude, or this gal is not like the world. That's Paul's point. Now there are those who walk in wisdom, understand the will of God, and they're filled with the Spirit. Now there's three indications, according to Paul, of being filled with the Spirit. First, we praise God in song. We just did that. We worshiped. We sang. And if you just stood there and you didn't sing... Well, maybe you ought to sing, because that's, a, that's an indication of whether or not you have the Spirit. We give thanks to Him for all things, and we always reflect our God in our roles, in our families, and in the church. As such, women, women, 
women understand their role in their family as wives, and men understand their role in the family as husbands, as men. Now, at this point, Paul has come to the role and responsibility of the children and the parents. And in verses 6, 1 through 4, Paul gives two crucial commands to the children, which we're going to see today, and two to the fathers, which we could apply to the parents. As children, first, you are to, so I'm speaking directly, Paul's speaking directly to the children, and we'll see that in a moment. As children, you are to, first, obey your parents. Obey your parents. Second, you're to honor your parents. So we're going to see first, first crucial command to the children is you are to obey your parents. Look at your text in 6.1. I hope you brought your Bibles. Open your text to Ephesians 6.1. And, it, and Paul writes, children, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, as we approach this text, I focused on parenting. I focused on parenting. But this morning, there's something that should jump off the page at us. I mean, we should, it should just completely jump off the page, something completely different. What do you think that is? Paul is actually speaking directly to the children. He's speaking directly to the children. And I think this has incredible implications. Now, last week, if you, if you remember, we found that your child is not born innocent. They inherit the sin of Adam from conception. I should clarify something. I think that the Bible teaches that a child who dies before what I'll call the age of understanding goes directly to heaven. But I also believe that the Bible is clear that your child comes in this, into this world prepackaged with sin. They are sinners from conception, from the beginning. In the words of Spurgeon, any man who declares his children to be born perfect never was a father. Your child without evil, you, you without eyes, you mean. I mean, you're just not looking. You're just not paying attention is his point. Augustine has said, the so-called innocence of children is more a matter of weakness of limb than purity of heart. Do you get that? It's more a matter of weakness of limb than purity of heart. Now, there are a couple of truths that I want you to recognize and understand regarding Paul's direct address to the children. I want you to recognize that in 6, 1, and 3, it, 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 that 6, 1, and 3 is about your child's responsibility before the Lord. It's more about that than it is about parenting per se. Now, if there's a connection... And, and we'll see this, but parenting actually is covered in 6.4, so we'll get to that. But you need to be aware that, especially you children, you need to be aware that Paul is speaking directly to you. He's speaking directly to you because you have your own intellect, you have your own brain, and you have a will. You have a volition. You, you make decisions in life, and you, and you think about things. Now, Paul, interestingly, starts with your child's obligation to you as, the, as their parent and ultimately to Christ. Now, I believe that, that these verses, verses 1 through, through 3, will clearly show this truth, but we can see this first in his direct address to them. Now, here's, the, here's, the, here's what's interesting to me, anyway, because I, I struggle with this. It's, we struggle to think in terms of our kids' responsibility toward the Lord. In other, ways, in other words, we tend to think of parenting in terms of our obligation to what? To modify their behavior. 
That's not, that shouldn't be our, our first point, our first uh, way to go. Yet we forget that the goal of parenting must be to teach our children that they are accountable to their Creator. They're accountable to God and that their heart, their heart is not right before Him. They are volitional creatures. They have a will and they have been created by God. Therefore, they are accountable to Him. That's, that's what we have to, from the very beginning, that's what we need to be teaching our children. Now, the Bible has many stories of failures of parents to teach their children that they are accountable to God and ultimately failing to teach the holiness, holiness of God and the, fa- the fact that God will judge. In Leviticus 10, there's a story of Nadab and Abihu. It's one such story. In uh, Leviticus 10, if you want to turn there, verse 1, it says, now, Nadab and Abihu, were sons, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Verse 2, And fire came from the presence of the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, just imagine that that happened today, as the preacher's up here preaching, and he preaches something that's not of the Lord, and the fire comes down from heaven. It'd certainly change our preaching, now wouldn't it? So the sons of Aaron came before the Lord, offering strange fire, which the Lord had not prescribed. Shockingly, God didn't ask them to take a, kindly take a step back, or even to change what they were doing. He didn't, he didn't ask them those, those things. He broke forth on them, and He consumed them. Look at verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Look at the last line. So Aaron, remember who Aaron is? The priest, the father of these two boys? So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Now, there's several things that we can learn from this account, including the holiness of God, but I want to focus on this story from Aaron's perspective. You see, his sons were just taken out by God for dishonoring him. I want you to notice that God didn't kill Aaron. That should be shocking to you. He didn't kill Aaron. He killed the sons. You see, while Aaron may not have taught them and led them correctly, it was the sons who paid the price. It was the sons who paid the price. And I'm not saying Aaron isn't accountable, but my point is is that it was the sons. Church, your primary focus in your parenting must be to teach your kids that they are accountable to a holy God They are accountable to a holy God that is no different than the God who consumed Nadab and Abihu. And if you struggle with that, then you struggle with God. God is merciful and full of grace. But they have to place their trust in Him. And you need to teach your children. You need to teach them that they're accountable to Him. And that He will judge if they don't turn to Him. But God is merciful and He's full of grace if they just place their trust in Him. 
Friends, you have failed as a parent if they grow up without knowing these two truths. Look down at ten the verses, verse 4 through 7. Well, if you look down there, you'll see that, that Aaron's nephews carried the bodies away from the tent of meeting. I mean, that, it, took, it took four verses to describe taking the bodies away. That's how, that's how serious this was. Look down at verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, with you when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so, and so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the, the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Now I would argue that these verses show that Nadab and Abihu were actually drinking alcohol when they offered the strange fire. Now obviously... Obviously, they should have been taught better, right? They should have been taught that God is holy and that you don't play with Him. But Aaron's biggest mistake is he didn't teach his sons to fear the Lord. This reminds me of a quote by William Penn. If we would amend the world, we would mend ourselves and teach our children to be not what we are, but what they should be, end quote. They should, they should be those who fear the Lord and call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Parents, you need to teach this to your children. Children, children, you need to understand that you are accountable to God. Let me give you a second truth that I want you to recognize. Paul considers the children to be part of the congregation of the churches. These letters were, were sent to be read in the presence of the, the congregation. And as Paul wrote this letter, he assumed that the children would be present in the assembly. Now, Paul is probably referring to children who were old enough to know and understand the truth. He's probably including all children who live under their parents' roof, therefore are still accountable to him or to them. Now, Let's make sure we understand. They're no longer accountable in the same way after they leave the home, especially after they marry and begin their own families. Though, according to verse 2, they are still bound to honor them, as we will see. Therefore, the children that Paul's talking to were old enough to hear and understand the gospel and yet still dependent upon their, their parents. Now, in our culture, we assume that young kids cannot understand deep theology. We assume that they can't, right? There, there's a point where they have to get old enough and mature enough to begin to understand the deep theological truths of, about the Lord. Even toddlers, even toddlers can begin to develop some understanding of our God. We can begin to teach them. And by the time they're school age, they can even begin to fathom the depths of theology beyond what many Christians in, in today's culture, begin, uh, even understand in their later years. We can't, we shouldn't, we must, we must not shortchange a child's ability to learn about the Lord. You, you should never think that they cannot come to, the, to true salvation in Christ. As such, we should always be teaching them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that the Lord can and does save even children. Andrew Bonner says, 
children ought to be dealt with in regard to the duty of accepting Christ as closely and seriously as older people. Personal, personal dealing is required, a dealing with them one by one. The point he's making is, is that they can understand. We can go to them and we can tell them, you are accountable to a holy God, but God has provided a way. He's provided the Lord Jesus Christ so that you may be saved. Spurgeon has said, a child of five, if properly instructed, can truly believe and be regenerated, regenerated as an adult. Now, let me, let me just say this. We need to be careful. We need to be careful to assess the fruit of salvation with someone so young. But we shouldn't doubt that God can truly save our children. God can do so if that's what He chooses. Now, go back to your text in Ephesians 5. Paul says, Children, obey your parents. The, tra- the word translated obey has the idea of following or being subject to. In other words, children are expected to do what they are told by their parents. When our children were young, we used the phrase first-time obedience. This meant that we expected them to obey first and ask for clarification later. This was for their safety, especially when they're, they're young. You see, children don't know the dangers of the street, right? They don't know that those cars can run them over and hurt them. They don't understand that stoves are hot. We, we have the wisdom as parents. We have the wisdom regarding these things that they don't yet possess. And I'm talking about toddlers here. What parent wouldn't want to impart this wisdom to their child, to teach them, to train them, to obey? This past week, I was telling one of you that I trained my dog, that we trained our dog to walk without a leash. I wanted him to learn to walk by the sound of my voice commands. At the end of the day, we, in this culture, we're expected to leash our pets because many folks fail to train them to obedience. Do you understand that? We don't have control of them, so we have to have them on a leash. And quite frankly, I struggle with an animal that's not trained to obey. But, but here's what's interesting. I'm sure you've seen the parents who leash their small children in public. So we treat them like animals. Personally, I don't understand putting a leash on your child, but do you know why most of them do this? You know why they do it? Now, I suppose it could be that some fear kidnapping, and I get that to a certain degree. But at the heart of it, they've not taught their children to trust and obey their voice from a, from a young age. You have to, in the home, you have to teach your children to trust and obey your voice and to love your voice so that they don't want to be anywhere away from your voice, so that they do what you say when you say it because it's for their good. You need to teach them these things. They fear what might happen to them if they run loose in public. Friends, you won't need to lease your child if you train them. You won't need to leash your child if you train them. They can learn to hear your voice and they can learn to obey it from a very early age. And they will learn to trust your voice and will not want to stray far from it. Let me give you an example of how this should start. In our home, Angie and I didn't go through and childproof the place. We didn't, we didn't do that. Now, we made sure all the true dangers were taken out of the way, so we didn't want... We didn't want to test fate. 
but we didn't pull all, put all the, the trinkets on the top shelf. We didn't, we didn't do that. When they went to grab something they shouldn't have, we told them no. We said, no, don't, you can't have that. And if they continue to grab it, we spanked their hand. Why did we do this? Because we wanted to train them to trust our wisdom and to associate disobedience with pain. That's what happens when we disobey, brethren, is that we experience pain. That's what happens to you even today when you disobey, when you don't follow Christ, when you do what your own, go your own way, you will experience pain. And that's what we're trying to show our children. Now, some may say that's horrible. But I would say it's more tragic for your child to run in front of a car because they won't obey your voice. It's even more catastrophic for them to be judged like Nadab and Abihu. And if you don't think God still doesn't still judge, you need to think again. Parents, it is incumbent upon you to teach your children to obey you. To obey your voice. Do it in your home so that when you're in a restaurant, you don't have to sit around worrying about, you know, how, who are we disturbing? Take care of it. It's the most loving thing you can do. It is your responsibility to teach your children the ways of the Lord. He says, obey your parents in the Lord. It is your responsibility to teach them to obey you according to the Lord's way. The, this phrase limits the scope of your authority in teaching. As such, you must be obedient to Christ in your life. It doesn't work if you're not obedient. Though the, the words, though the words of the wise, according to Thomas Fuller, be as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, yet their examples are the hammer to drive them in to take the deeper hold. This, then he goes on to explain it. A father that whipped his son for swearing and swore himself whilst he whipped him did more harm by his example than good by his correction. End quote. Say that again. A father who whipped his son for swearing and swore himself whilst he whipped him did more harm by his example than good by his correction, end quote. That quote hits me right in the heart. Quote hits me in the heart. I need to have the right example. I need to, to live a life that, that exemplifies what I'm teaching my children. We'll see this again when we address the parents in 6.4, but look back at your text. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. For this is right. Paul says it's right. It is right for your children to obey, uh, for the, the children to obey their parents in the Lord. Again, we need to recognize that Paul is speaking directly to the children. He, he tells them that it's, it is fitting. It is fitting to obey your parents. Paul is a little more explicit in Colossians 3.20. He says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Your children need to be taught that it's pleasing. From an early age, they need to be taught that it is pleasing to the Lord when they obey you, when they listen to you, when they heed your voice, when they trust your voice. Now let's briefly look at the second crucial command. Paul gives to the children at Ephesus. Second command is you are to honor your parents. That's verses 2 and 3. Paul writes, Honor your father and your mother, 
which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, we're going to dive into this more next time, but for now, Paul gives an overarching command. The Bible teaches that children should honor their parents by obeying them. It's the fifth commandment. We find it in Exodus 20, verse 12, which states, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So he's, Paul here in, in Ephesians 6, 2, he's quoting the fifth commandment from Exodus 20. So we see that it is God's expectation for children to honor their father and their mother. Now, the word translated honor means to value, to show high regard, to revere. It has the idea, it can have the idea of setting a price. In this present context, Paul uses the word to show that children should value their parents. In their early years, this should motivate them to obey their parents. We saw that in Ephesians 6.1. It should motivate them to obey their parents. So if they honor you, they will obey you. As they grow older, it should motivate them to value their parents' wisdom. They should want your wisdom. They should come to you for your wisdom. As they grow older, they should, as they, even as they get out of the home, they should come back to you and say, Hey, Dad. Hey, Mom. What do you think about this? How do I go about this? How do I think about this? And cause them to care for their parents as the parents grow older. Because they honor them. They would never want to leave them un- uncared for. Now in 6.2, Paul says that there's a promise attached to this command. I take this to mean that the fifth commandment is the first commandment that contains a specific promise if it is followed. He gives that promise, Paul gives that promise in 6.3, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, that's a general truth. It doesn't mean that every person who honors their parents will always live a long and good life. But it does mean this. We can't expect to live long and prosper if we don't honor our parents. Children, you're young. I'm just telling you right here, right now. According to the Lord, if you don't honor your parents, you cannot have an expectation of a long and prosperous life. It starts with honoring the ones who brought you into this, into this world. You see, the toddler who continues to disobey puts themselves in grave danger. That risk increases and changes with time. The rebellious teenager who will not listen to parents puts himself or herself in a grave position. That You should listen to the wisdom of your parents. You should honor them. Because they know more than you. They know the dangers. They know when you're, you're making bad decisions. And they know that the, you need to go a different direction. And you need to listen to their, their counsel. In the words of Harold, Harold Honer, who is a commentator on Ephesians, he says, as a general rule, obedience and honor foster self-discipline, which in turn brings stability and longevity and well-being. Disobedience and dishonor promote a lack of discipline, which in turn bring instability, a shortened life, and a lack of well-being. If we want our children to live long and prosperous lives, we will teach them the ways of the Lord, and we will teach them to obey us, and to honor us, and to, and to look to us for wisdom. Now you might ask, how do I teach my, 
How do I teach them the ways of the Lord? Well, a good place to start is in Proverbs, which are designed to train children in God's wisdom. If you'd like, turn to Proverbs 22.6. Proverbs 22.6 might be familiar to, to you. The Legacy Standard Bible translates this verse. Train up a child according to his way, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, this verse has been interpreted, interpreted as a promise that when we raise our children in the right way, they will not depart from it. Now, I, I believe this to be partially true. I, I think it's a general truth. If we raise our children in the right way, if we, if we model Christ to them, that and as they grow older, as the Lord matures them, that they will turn back to that way. But there is actually another way to understand this verse. The Legacy Standard Bible actually captures the idea. Notice the Legacy Standard says, Train up a child according to his way. Now here's what's interesting. What is a, what is a child's natural way? Destruction, right? Path of destruction. That's their natural bent. So parents... Your children are born on a path of destruction unless you intervene. Unless you intervene. In other words, they're born without wisdom and understanding, and it is your job to train them and divert them from that natural path of destruction. And if you fail to do so, then they will not depart from their path. You understand what the point is. If I don't, if I don't intervene and I leave them, and I, I allow them to stay on that path, they're going to stay on that path, and they will not depart. With that, let's look at some of the ways that the Proverbs help in training your children. First, first way. <clears throat> Proverbs, the Proverbs instruct your children not to forsake your, your, your teaching. Proverbs 1.8 My son, your father's instructions... My son, your father's instruction, or do not forsake your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Proverbs 2.1 My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. Proverbs 3.1 My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Now I want you to understand that the Proverbs were intended to be a teaching tool for parents to children. More specifically, they were intended to be used by the king, written by King Solomon, right? But used by the king to teach their son, future kings to walk in wisdom. As such, they were designed to ensure that the future kings would walk in the wisdom of God. So what he's saying is, listen to my voice, listen to my wisdom. Don't depart from my wisdom because the wisdom that I have has been given to me by God. Point two, or <coughs> second way they instruct you, your children. The Proverbs instruct your children not to reject the discipline of the Lord. I didn't write down the address of this. I wish I knew where it was at. Uh, My son, do not neglect the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as the father corrects the son in whom he delights. You see, the Proverbs teach 
not to reject the discipline of the Lord and not to reject ultimately, ultimately his dis- discipline, but who does that discipline come from while he's a child? It comes from you, right? From your hand. Third way, the Proverbs instruct your children to fear Yahweh, which is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools, fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, the fear of Yahweh is where true knowledge of life begins. And only a fool despises God's wisdom. So, children, when you refuse your parents' wisdom, you are actually refusing, you're refusing wisdom from God and therefore you're refusing Him. And the Bible says a fool despises God's wisdom. Early destruction comes when we despise wisdom and instruction in the ways of the Lord. Denying the existence of God is the pinnacle of this foolishness. Psalm 24.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Children, again, just as Paul did, I'm going to speak directly to you. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. When you choose to disobey your parents, in effect, you're saying, there is no God who will judge me. Did you get that? When you, when you choose to disobey parents and you refuse to honor them, in effect, you're saying, there is no God who will judge me. When you choose to trust in Christ for your salvation, you're, when you... When you choose not to trust Christ for your salvation, you're saying, I don't need God in my life. I don't need Him. My way is, a better, is better than God's way. But here's, let me just give, put you, give you a little secret. There literally have been millions and millions of folks who've gone before you, including your parents who have walked their own way until they realize that their way actually leads to destruction. So you would do well, I'm speaking again to the children, you would do well to listen to your parents. You would do well to heed their wisdom and their instruction. You might think you know better, but I can promise you that you don't. Even the most foolish parent is probably wiser than you are. He says, God said it is right to obey your parents. God says it's right to trust in Christ. Christ took took your sins upon Himself and He endured the suffering of of the wrath of His Father. My prayer for each one of the children here and for each person here who doesn't know Christ is that you would see the beauty of what God has done for you in Christ and that as children you would obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. That you would honor your father and your mother which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on this earth. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, what a incredibly important topic. Lord, I pray as a church, as parents, even on this Father's Day, it's by your sovereign timing that I'm preaching this message on Father's Day. 
Lord, I pray that as a church that we would see and understand the importance of our children obeying their parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's so important and crucial that they honor their parents, not just as children, but as they grow older. principle we reap what we sow when we fail to honor we fail to obey we reap what we sow and according to this if we if we do so if as children if we obey our parents and even as adults if we honor our parents you promise a long and prosperous life what i think of the story of Nadab and Abihu. May we never allow our kids to take for granted your holiness. May we never allow our kids to, without telling them, without warning them, to walk before you in an unholy way. May we teach them that they're accountable to you, directly accountable to you. Father, may we understand that if we don't, if we fail in this endeavor, if we fail to do so, they are the one that will be judged. Oh yes, we'll be held accountable for our failure. But they're the ones who will suffer judgment. They're the ones who will suffer the wrath. May that drive us to teach our kids, to obey, to honor, to love the ways of Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen.